Well, this week, uh, well, this past week, uh, we, were, we started our series on Sunday morning called Discover New Hope. And I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said that they are making a commitment to, as Pastor Pauline was saying, their commitment to be contributors, that they want to uh, be a part of what God is doing here at the church. And our hope is that many people would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why we do what we do. We don't just come here and sing to God and worship to Him, and then that's it. We're to go out into the world and then reach others for Him. So know that you're called. Many of us have come to know Jesus Christ out of a crisis. We came to Him because things weren't going so well in our lives. I was kind of forced to come to church because in order for me to uh, move up here to the Big Island from Oahu, Heidi's father said, if you're going to move in with us, you have to go to church. Now, I wasn't a believer. Like, I knew about God, but I didn't accept Jesus into my heart as my Lord and Savior. So he knew what he was doing. And so by the time I came to church, I was welcomed, I was loved, and I was invested in. And that's what Pastor Pauline is talking about. When you give to God, it's more than just the financial gift that God will use. He mobilizes people so that when new people come to church, they can sense the love of God and see God's love in action but also that we would gather together as we're called the saints. I know that might be a far stretch for you to understand that we're saints, not in the sense of we're perfect, but God looks at us as righteous beings because of what Jesus has done for us. And then he says, now I'm, I'm going to do something in your life, not so that it's just for you, but so that you can go into the world and reach others for Christ. See, you're not the perfect one. Jesus is. So don't ever think that, but I don't have my act together yet. You never will. We will never get our act together in order for God to say, okay, you're good to go. I can use you now. In fact, tonight we're going to be talking about a group of people that God chose to represent him, a small group of people to represent him, and we still talk about them today. But before we do that, I want to set up tonight because we're in this series called Marvelous God. We're going to end the series tonight and then go into a two-part series in the next a couple of weeks uh, just for a night of prayer. We're going to learn about praying, and we're going to pray together and things like that. But when you think about how God assembles people together, you can't help but think about that God knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And because he knows exactly what he's doing, he brings people together in order to accomplish a mission that he sees is needed in our world today. And so when God does that, he takes a group of people who probably others would just pass by. And they would look at a group of people and say, no way they can be used by God. I'm sure many of us who serve or many of us who have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there are probably people who we know, even family members, who are just in awe of what God has done in our lives. Some of us will even hear our friends or even co-workers say phrases like this, you go to church? No way! Not in a negative sense, but in the sense of, wow, then God is doing something in your life. So God will do that. He will take an ordinary person and release their God-given potential and change them into someone extraordinary. In the series that we're in, Marvelous God, we're kind of likening it to superheroes. Marvel, in particular, and right now, you know, you have all the movies coming out and uh, just recently Thor came out. And if you're not a Marvel fan, it's okay. Just catch the principle and the concept 
of how these people became superheroes in, in the movies, of course, but their background may not be what we would think of when we see them as a superhero because they all have like an alias or they have their, their, their normal personhood and then they go into a superhero mode. So what I'm about to show you is about a minute and a half clip of uh, a group of people who are assembled together and they are called the Avengers. Let's take a look at this. These group, this group of people together can do extraordinary things. Now, God does the very same thing with you and I. I mean, just, just think about just this, this group of Avengers and their, their kind of leader, Nick Fury. Nick Fury was the guy with the patch on his eye. His goal is to save the world, kind of like what God's is. God's goal is that none shall perish. In other words, he wants all people to come to know him as Lord and Savior. But let's just look at just these Avengers in who they are. So if you don't know, Black Widow, which is Scarlett Johansson, I think that's her name, the actress, she's a Black Widow, and her name is Natasha Romanova. And she is known by many aliases. She is an expert spy, an athlete, and an assassin. I know it's kind of, you know, vulgar or kind of uh, violent and dark. Hawkeye, is, his name is Clinton Francis Clint Barton, and he is a world-class archer and a marksman. And he, his above-average reflexes and hand-eye coordination make him the most proficient archer ever known. He is also trained to throw knives and whatever else weapons he can get, darts, boomerangs, whatever. And then you have Thor. Thor is trained in the art of war. And his power as a skilled warrior is highly proficient in hand-to-hand combat. His swordsmanship and hammer throwing is like no other. As the son of Odin, Thor's strength, endurance, and resistance to injury are greater than the vast majority of his superhuman race. So he is extremely long-lived, but he can still age. So sorry, guys, Thor will get older, but for some reason, they'll just keep getting an actor and actor and actor, and he'll live on. But he's also immune to conventional disease and highly resistant to injury. So if you watch the movies, you'll see that happening. Now, Iron Man. Iron Man is Tony Stark. And Iron Man has a genius-level intellect. Tony Stark has a genius-level intellect that allows him to invent a wide range of sophisticated devices specializing in advanced weapons and armor. That's how his company makes their money. And then you have the Hulk, Dr. Bruce Banner, who is a genius in nuclear physics, and he, he possesses a mind so brilliant that it cannot be measured on any known intelligence test. The Hulk possesses an incredible level of superhuman physical ability. Now, his capacity for physical strength is potentially limitless due to the fact that the Hulk's strength increases proportionately with his level of great emotional stress. And we know his emotional stress, it's called anger, Hulk smash. That's all he wants to do. So if you think of these guys, you assemble this team together and you see God doing amazing things. Then you have what is, who is called Captain America. Captain America has his strength because he took in some fluid that makes him who he is. But he is, he is that one guy who is known for everything that is vowed to serve his country well. He wants to serve his country in any way he could, 
His name is Steve Rogers, and he took that superhuman serum to become America's one-man army. Now, this guy, although strong, will always defend for righteousness. That's why if you watch these, these series, it's like Captain America is that one guy who wants to do things with a moral heart behind it. He wants to do things correctly. So you put this team together, but you look at their backgrounds. They have all kinds of different backgrounds. But this team is put together so that they can accomplish a mission that has a higher chance of victory together than going at it alone. When you put this team together, you now have what they call the Avengers, but you also have a super team. Now, if you liken it to the life of Christ, in the life of Jesus and in the case of Jesus, he assembled a team of people that continue on to this day to accomplish the mission to go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them. Jesus calls them the disciples. You and I are his disciples. Now, he started off with a few. He started off with 12. It actually grew to about 120, but really the 12 stuck by his side. In the book of Mark, in fact, if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can open that and turn to Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, we're going to look at, we're going to read. And in, in the book of Mark chapter 3, this is where Jesus is going to begin to assemble his team. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. I'll read it in case you don't have your Bible. By the way, please bring your Bible. We're in church. Bring it. If you have your phone, download a Bible app. It's free. But get into the Word of God. Have it, have it with you at all times. That's your sword. And because we're in the, you know, the, the, the theme of you know, superheroes, you need a weapon. So your weapons should be the Word of God. Okay, so Jesus appoints the 12 disciples in verse 13, Mark chapter 3. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. How's that for your first mission? He calls his disciples and they're like, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Okay, I'm going to send you out. You're going to preach the kingdom of God and you're going to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's kind of a bummer, right? I mean, Judas will always have that kind of tagged on to the end of his name. But if you look at these guys, Jesus called those whom he wanted. Like Jesus saw something in these group of people that no one else could see. Now we see them as disciples and we see them as, wow, look at this, this group of people who was able to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and then change the world. Where 2,000 plus years later, we're still talking about what they did. They were history makers they changed history, changed the world through the message that Jesus gave to them. And your role is no different. 
it absolutely never changed. He still calls those he wants. And he says, you go into all the world. I have given you authority to go into all the world, preach to people, let them know who is Jesus, and cast out demons. Now, there's a way to go and do these things. So don't follow Hollywood and, you know, start looking for holy water and start, you know, getting tea leaves and start you know, slapping people around and saying, oh, demons out and, you know, things like that. Unless it's your sibling, you might want to do that. That's fine. But you normally don't want to do that when you go to work. So you have these group of people, a uh, group of people, and when Jesus assembles this team, he does actually three things. And we're going to look at these three things. I'll give it to you, but then we'll, we'll kind of dissect it as we go on. When, when Jesus assembles a team, he does this. He, he gives the invitation. That's the first thing he does. Jesus gives the invitation. It's just that simple. What he doesn't do is force you and I to follow him. He just, he just provides the invitation. It's kind of... It's kind of like that when you assemble a team. Remember in, in elementary and then high school, you have to assemble a team, or if you play a sport, you're assembling a team. They can tell you no. They have the option of saying, no, nah, I don't want to be on your team. And normally in grade school, we choose the people that we think are going to be the very best. We look at their talent, their skill, and if they're going to help us win. That's kind of what we do. We choose according to that. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't look at how good these guys were. Jesus looked at their given potential in who they were becoming and who they could be because no one would have picked them. These people were not people that normally would be picked. The second thing Jesus does is he gives you the opportunity to respond. So he gives the invitation, but he also waits for a response. He doesn't force it. He just waits for a response. And you and I have been given such a great invitational heart behind the calling that God has for us. Just the, just the thought of Jesus calling us to be a part of what he's trying to do in our world comes with it the responsibility of a response, that we get to respond to what Jesus is doing and who he's asking us to be. So he gives the invitation and then he gives us the opportunity to respond, but then he equips and empowers us to follow him and to become everything he sees us to be. You see, we live in Hilo, or, or you may live outside of Hilo or, or maybe Outer Island, maybe you're visiting, but we live in such a, a small community that we, we kind of know almost everyone, and not everyone, but you know how we say, oh, it's oh, such a small world. Like you, you start meeting people and then they know your, your cousin, your relative, your brother, your sister, or things like that, or they grew up together. Like we're a tight community. And because we know each other, sometimes we give up on each other because we know each other. Someone would look at us and say, oh, no way, that person would do well for God. Well, how is that person going to do well for God. Or what? They go to church? Yeah, hypocrite them. You should see them. You should see them at the parties. You know, they'll say things like that. However, that's not what Jesus looks for. What Jesus looks for is not your past. What he looks forward to is your future, your potential. And while everyone else is looking at your mistakes and your past behaviors, Jesus is looking at the miracles that can take place and your future. Jesus is always pulling out of us our destiny. And the potential that he sees in us. And along with that, he will equip us and empower us to follow him. 
The goal that Jesus has for every single one of us is never about remaining the same. Oh, he'll love us. He'll even accept us just as we are, but he loves us too much to keep us like that. Any good parent would bathe their children and sometimes soak them in the tub when they're that dirty. And God does the same thing with us. He says, I love you too much to keep you there. So he does some things that cleans us from the inside and out. Jesus didn't randomly just choose people. In fact, he, he, he spent all night praying and then went out to choose his disciples. I'm going to go through the list of his disciples. And what this list is all about is not just the disciples that he chose, but really what they represented and who they were. Because this list doesn't just represent how Jesus calls someone, but this list also represents that God chooses people that not too many people would choose. That they might look at these people and say, boy, I'm, I, I'm not going to choose these guys because of their background. Let's start with um, the first person that Jesus calls. And as I go through this list, we're going to take some time on this with his disciples. I want you to listen to their character qualities. And I want you, just like how we do with some superheroes, we have some favorite superheroes. Or even like a sports team, we have a favorite sports team. Like we gravitate towards certain favorite things because we, it's, it's to our liking. And so it is with these disciples. I want you to listen to these disciples. And I want you to, as, as I go through this list, kind of in your mind and in your heart, start to think of, hmm, I relate to that person. Or, oh, yeah, that's me. Now, what I don't want you to do is start poking people next to you and saying, that's you, you, you don't want, you Judas. You know, don't, just, it's just for you. Just you think in your head, who do I relate to? Because Jesus is still assembling men and women to answer the call to be fishers of men. He's still calling us. And so as I go through this list, look for their character qualities and then see who you relate to. So first of all, is the, person, uh, the first person was Andrew. Andrew was like an evangelist. And Andrew was the brother of Peter and the son of Jonas. He lived in Bethsaida and Capernaum and was a fisherman before Jesus called him. Originally, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. And so what Andrew did, the first thing he did was call his brother Peter to come to Jesus. So that's Andrew. He was like an evangelist. He's the type of person that he just cannot keep quiet about Jesus. That he's the person that would say, you got to come to church. You just got to come to church. Yeah, but I don't even believe in God. That's okay. It doesn't matter if you believe in God. Yeah, but I don't have clothes to wear. I, I just get t-shirts and shorts. You just got, borrow my slippers. You just come bare feet. It doesn't matter. Just, you got to come to church. Yeah, but what if, the, what if the building fall down? Never fall down when I came. When you come, you're going to be fine. Got reinforced steel beams at that church. You'll be okay. It's like that's the person that Andrew was. It didn't matter what anyone said. He just said, here's a man that we need to follow. So that's Andrew. The second person is Bartholomew or Matthew or, excuse me, Nathaniel. And this man, Bartholomew, was like a missionary. He went to other places in, in, in people groups so that he could speak about Jesus Christ. This man, Bartholomew, lived in Cana of Galilee. Now, if you remember uh, Jesus' first miracle, it was in Cana. It was at a wedding. So that's where Bartholomew lived. Tradition says that he was a missionary in Armenia. A number of scholars believe that he was the only one of the 12 disciples who came from royal blood. 
or noble birth. His name means son of Tomai or Talmai. And Talmai was the king of Jeshur, whose daughter, Mekah, was the wife of King David, whom uh, the mother of Absalom. Mekah was Absalom's mother. And he was believed to be a missionary to India, but then later died there as a martyr. So this man, Bartholomew, he, he, he's okay with going to places that were dangerous. He was okay with it. Not because he liked the, the thrill of it or the adventure of it, but because he wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus in places where not too many people would go. And you might be like that. You may, you may talk to people that no one else would talk to about Jesus. You just might be that person. That's Bartholomew. The third person is James, also known as the elder because there were two James. So James the elder, he was a preacher. James the elder, he was the son of Zebedee and Salome, brother of John the apostle. And he was a fisherman who lived in Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Jerusalem. And he preached in Jerusalem and Judea and was beheaded by Herod. But he was a member of the inner circle. You know, James, uh, Peter, James, and John. He was a member of that inner circle, so-called because they were accorded special privileges. You know, Peter, James, and John, Jesus always took them to these special places. And he was a man of great courage, a man of forgiveness, a man without jealousy. He lived in the shadows of John but a man of extraordinary faith. And he was the first of the 12 disciples who was martyred. He was killed for his belief. So this man, James, was, he's that type of person who would preach the gospel no matter what. He was that courageous because he knew that he would be okay in the end, even if he were to die. So that's James the elder. And then you have James the lesser or the younger. And he is also known as the son of Alphaeus or Cleophas and Mary. So this is, according to some scholars, the half-brother of Jesus. He lived in Galilee. He was the brother of the apostle Jude. And according to some traditions, he wrote the epistle of James, preached in Palestine and Egypt, and was crucified in Egypt. So he also died a martyr's death. James was one of the little-known disciples. James was a man of strong character and one of the most fiery type. So in other words, he just was edgy. Just edgy all the time. Just real edgy. Not, not that he was a man of anger. He just was edgy. And he was able to use that to preach. He was able to bring the gospel to places that required someone who was fiery and kind of edgy. And that's James. And then you have John who is called the Beloved. In fact, I don't know if others called him the Beloved. I think when he was writing the book of John, he put that in there. So I don't know if he was like, yeah, uh, here's all the disciples. You got Peter, is known as Simon, but now he changed his name to Peter, which means the rock. And then John, the Beloved. Like the favorite of Jesus, but that's what he put. Some of us, that's what we think. We're the favorite in the family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So John, the son of Zebedee and Salome, who was the brother of James the Apostle, he was known as the beloved disciple, maybe self-proclaimed, we don't know, but he was a fisherman who lived in Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Jerusalem, and he was a member of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and he wrote the Gospel of John, and then 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation. He preached among the churches of Asia Minor 
and he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Remember, he spent the ending years, and that's where uh, the ending years of his life in Patmos, and that's where he received the revelation of Jesus, which we call the book of Revelation. But he was later freed and then died a natural death. John was one of the most prominent apostles. He is mentioned in many places in the New Testament, but he was a man of action. If he was going to do something, he was going to do it. He, he didn't, he didn't, he, there was no mistake about what he was going to do. He was going to accomplish it. But he also was very ambitious. He had a little bit of a temper, which means that that's why he was called the Son of Thunder, which was a nickname that was given to him. That's John the Beloved. Judas, poor guy. This guy is known as the betrayer. I mean, that's what he did at the end of his life. He betrayed Jesus to be crucified. Judas Iscariot, or known as the traitor. Now, let's just pause here, and let's think this through. Judas is known as the traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus. Who picked him? Jesus picked this guy. I, I don't think any of us would look at this list now and say, I'm going to still pick Judas. Yeah, he'll, he's going to betray me, but I'm going to still pick him. No, Jesus knew he was going to betray him. But Jesus gave Judas the chance. He gave him that opportunity. Judas was a thief. He actually stole money. But do you know what responsibility Jesus gave to Judas? He was the treasurer. How is that for, like, really, Jesus? That don't make sense. Like, wait, so you're going to assemble a team together? Yes. And you're going to put together the, the best people, the brightest? No. Okay, so what are you doing then? What are we doing? You know this guy, Judas? He, he's a thief? Yes. What are you going to make him responsible for? He's going to take care of the money. <laughs> yeah, but he's the thief? Yes. Why would you do that? Because he doesn't know he is one. Unless it's revealed to him, he'll keep going that same route. It's almost like Jesus tells us the same thing, that he'll put us in places that sometimes it's revealed to us, not just where we are in life, but how much Jesus believes in us. That Jesus would actually give you and I the responsibility of giving out the greatest message in the history of our world, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that we were once lost and now we're found by God and we have, we have a future and a hope in Christ. He gave us the greatest message. Now, you might be looking at yourself or even other people and saying, yeah, but I don't think they're qualified for that. And Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But you, you chose us to give the greatest message in the world? Yes. You know our flaws? Yes. So why would you choose us? Because I believe in you. Only Jesus can get away with something like that. And he also equips us to do this. So Ju Judas, although a traitor, was given an opportunity, opportunity after opportunity, to get things right. Some of us fall into that category, that Jesus gives us opportunity after opportunity to make things right. And he waits for us. That's Judas. 
There's another disciple. His name is Jude. Jude, or Thaddeus, son of Alphaeus, or Cleopas, and Mary. He was the brother of James the Younger, and he was one of the very little-known apostles, and he lived in Galilee. And tradition says that he preached in Assyria and Persia and died a martyr in Persia. So he is, he's a preacher. He's someone who would, by character, has an intense and violent kind of uh, way of thinking that he wanted to get his message across. He had the dream of a world power. He wanted, he wanted to, to have Jesus be that leader for them. In the New Testament, he asked Jesus at the Last Supper, he says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, Judas was saying, if you want to rule, you're going to have to get out there into the world. If you're going to be that kind of dominant king, you're going to have to show everyone what you're capable of. But Judas was more interested in making Christ known to the world, not as a suffering savior, but as a ruling king. And that's not why Jesus came to this earth, not for a temporary kingship, but he came to be our eternal savior as king of kings. And Judas couldn't understand that. Or Jude, excuse me, couldn't understand that. He's also called Judas. It's kind of interchangeable, that name. But Jude was that person. He was the preacher. He was ready to go, ready to make Jesus the king. But Jesus says, no, no, no. My kingdom is not of this world. And Jude wrote, of course, the book of Jude. He's just that preacher guy. He, wants, he, wanted, to, he wanted to tell everyone how great Jesus is, but he wasn't accurate in the beginning. And sometimes we're like that. We, we just have, we're zealous for God. We're just not accurate, but we still go out there and tell people how good God is. The eighth person of our, this team that Jesus puts together is a man by the name of Matthew or Levi. This guy was a missionary. Matthew, or also known as Levi, lived in Capernaum. He was a publican or what we know as, know as a tax collector. He wrote the gospel that has his own name, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, but he also died as a martyr in Ethiopia. Now, the call of Matthew was an apostolic calling, which meant he was able to bring people around him uh, and send them out to, to preach the gospel and send them out to spread the gospel. And from the passages of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learn that Matthew was also called Levi. And it was a common custom in the Middle East at the time of Christ for men to have two names. Matthew's name actually means a gift of God. So if you know someone who is named Matthew, they are a gift from God, regardless of how they act or the things they say. I know a Matthew. He's probably serving here tonight somewhere. He's probably in the back saying, I am a gift from God. Yes, you are, Matthew, a gift from God no matter how you act, no matter what you do in life. <laughs> Sorry, just teasing him. But Matthew was not like all the other disciples. He, he, he was, he was or the other disciples, they were mostly fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. Think about that, a tax collector. In those days, they were despised. No one liked tax collectors. No one liked this guy. Jesus goes to this guy's house and eats dinner with him. And the Pharisees, the teacher of the religious law, looks at this situation and says, wait a minute, this, this guy is eating with sinners. Why is he eating with sinners? And Jesus says, you know, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's those who are sick. 
those who aren't well. The average man would have thought it impossible for Matthew to change, but to God, all things are possible. And Matthew became the first man to write down the teachings of Jesus. He was a missionary of the gospel who laid down his life for the faith of his master. He believed in Christ so much that he gave his life. See, it's impossible to estimate the debt that Christianity owes to people like this. Just think about where we are in our world today, that Jesus would choose someone like this to represent him. Jesus continues to choose people like this to still represent him. A guy like Matthew, who laid down his life for his Savior as a missionary, is the reason why people like you and I can still have hope. Because here's a person who is far from God, despised by the community, and Jesus brings him near to himself and uses him to change the world. The ninth disciple. This man, is the name, this man is, uh, goes by the name of Peter. Jesus changed his name. His name was Simon, but then he changed his name to Peter. He was a fisherman who lived in Bethsaida and Capernaum. He did evangelistic and missionary work among the Jews going as far as Babylon. So he was also a member of that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Peter was known as the one who just blurted things out. Like he blurts things out, and then afterwards he's like, oh, my bad. I, I didn't mean that. After, after Peter says something, and then he starts to realize, shucks, that wasn't the best thing to say. He says things first and then apologizes later. And at times, didn't apologize. He just said things because he was just like that. But he also did well in changing. And tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not going to be crucified like how Jesus was. I'm not even worthy to be crucified in that manner. Turn me upside down. Then I'm wondering if he was like, oh, shucks, I shouldn't have said that. My bad. Because that's a gruesome death. But at the time of Christ, the common language was Greek and the family language was Hebrew. So his Greek name was Simon and his Hebrew name was Cephas. The Greek meaning of Simon is rock and the Arabic meaning of Cephas is also rock. So what Jesus was saying to Peter was, You're, the, the change that I'm going to do in you is going to be so solid that you're going to be able to, to be a part of something I'm going to do in the future. And Jesus said these words to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And there's a deeper meaning than that. But it is, it, it is Peter who asked how often he must forgive. Peter was the one who inquired about the reward for all those who follow Jesus. It was Peter who first confessed Jesus and declared him as the son of the living God. It was Peter who was on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Peter who saw Jairus' daughter raised to life, yet it is Peter who denied Christ three times. He was an apostle and a missionary who laid down his life for Jesus. Yes, he had many faults, but he also had the saving grace of a loving heart. That's why after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and Peter went back to fishing, Jesus was on the shore, and Peter recognized him. Peter swam to shore, and that's when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? It's like there was another heart connection, and from that day forward, Peter went all in. 
And no matter how many times Peter had fallen and failed, he always recovered his courage and his integrity, and he kept moving forward. And some of us are like that. We'll, we'll do well, and then we'll fall. We'll do well, and then we'll fall. But what Peter did was he learned from his mistakes, and he kept moving forward. The tenth disciple is a man by the name of Philip, who's a missionary. And tradition says that Philip preached in, uh, in Phrygia and died a martyr's death. But Philip came to Bethsaida, the town from which Peter and Andrew came from. So it's likely that Philip was also a fisherman. But Philip was a man with a warm heart and a pessimistic head. So he was the one who would very much like to do something for others, but who did not see how it could be done. And he wants to do things for other people. He just doesn't know how to get, make it happen. So this simple Galilean gave everything that he had. And in return, God used him. And it is said that he also died a martyr's death by hanging. And while he was dying, he requested that his body be wrapped, not in linen, but in papyrus, for he felt he was not even worthy that his body should be treated as the body of Jesus had been treated because Jesus was wrapped in a linen cloth. So while they're about to hang him, he says, here's my one request, one request. I don't want to be buried and wrapped like how Jesus was wrapped. He was just that type of person. And then the 11th disciple is known as Simon the Zealot. Now, we don't know too much about this man, but the Zealots were fanatical Jews who wanted to, wanted to not just spread the good news, but he wanted, he wanted Jesus to do something to the Romans because he hated the Romans. But it was his hate for the Romans that destroyed the city of Jerusalem. In fact, the zealots were known as reckless people, zealous in good practices and extravagant and reckless in the worst kinds of actions. Now, from this man's background, we see that Simon was a fanatical nationalist, a man devoted to the law, a man with bitter hatred for anyone who dared to compromise with Rome. Yet Simon clearly emerged as a man of faith. In other words, Jesus took a man who had this belief in him and the way he thought and helped him to see his potential. And then he was willing to share with the rest of the disciples, especially Matthew, the Roman tax collector, the love that he found in his master. And Simon the Zealot, the man who would have been killed in loyalty to Israel, became the man who saw that God would have no forced service that God would always give us the freedom to choose, and he also died as a martyr. Then you have the last disciple. His name is Thomas. We know him as Doubting Thomas. So this man, Thomas, he lived in Galilee, and tradition says that he also worked in Parthia, Persia, and India. He also suffered martyrdom. He died for his faith. Thomas was his Hebrew name, and Didymus was his Greek name. And at times, he is also called Judas. But he also, he also is defined as someone who was close to Jesus enough that even when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Thomas was there. He was also there in the upper room. In fact, Thomas was the one who, where he wanted to know how to know the way where Jesus was going. He was the one that said to Jesus, we, don't, we haven't any idea where you're going, so how do we know how to get there? 
when Jesus told them about my father's home, there are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If this were not so, I would tell you plainly. And you know where I'm going and how to get there. And that's when Thomas said, we have, we, we don't even know how to, how are we going to even follow you where you're going to go? We don't know how. And that's when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made that statement because of a person like Thomas. Thomas, yeah, he's known as, yeah, doubting Thomas, but more than being a doubter, he was just a person who wanted to know. He was a man who was courageous. He was a man who would not believe until he had seen. He was a man of devotion and of faith. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he came back and invited Thomas to put his finger in his nail prints in his hands as well as the spear that was pierced in his side for Thomas to touch even the side. But then we see Thomas making one of the greatest confessions of faith when he finally could see. He said, my Lord and my God. His doubts transformed into an unshakable faith. And for some of us, sometimes we doubt God, but don't underestimate what God can do with your doubt. That even in your doubts, when you finally see, you're going to have an unshakable faith. And so Thomas made that decision and by this very fact, Thomas's faith became great, intense, and convincing. And it is said that Thomas also was commissioned to build a palace for the king of India, and he was killed also as a martyr. He died for his faith. See, with all of these disciples, Jesus gave the invitation. He gave them the opportunity to respond. He also equipped them to be the greatest team ever assembled. Tonight, I, I want us to think about how Jesus called his disciples and the responsibilities that they were given. And at the same time, who he's calling you to be. Because normally when Jesus is going to do something in our lives, we'll say to him, yeah, but... Or you feel God tugging at your heart to be a part of what he's doing, and then you say, yeah, but... We, we'll always have that. So what we need to remember is when we look at these disciples... None of them were qualified. They all could have said, yeah, but. But they didn't. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus called them, they did something so unbelievable that we can learn their principle today. And this is what they did. They dropped their nets and followed him. In other words, they knew that what they were doing was a given. I can, I can always do this, but what Jesus is asking me to do, now that's something eternal. This is temporary, but what Jesus is asking me to do is eternal. My heart and prayer tonight is that we would think in that way, that when Jesus calls you, he doesn't call you to do something that's temporary. He calls you and I to do something that's eternal. And this Sunday, we're going to, finish up our Discover New Hope, our series, and we're going to talk about some commitments that we're going to make. And my heart is this, that you would, you would clearly see that with us connecting with God, we can bring eternal hope into our community, into our world, into our city. Yes, we're going to have many laws that are going to be passed, but it's really Christ 
who comes into a person's heart that changes us for all of eternity. We need Jesus in our city and in our world. We don't need religion. We need Jesus. And he assembled you and I to be the team to do so because we're his disciples. Amen. You bow your heads and yeah, let's thank the Lord. He, he commissioned you and I. Let's not go backwards. Let's bow your heads. Let's bow our heads together and we're going to pray. And Lord, our heart tonight is, is simple. You see our lives from beginning to end. We don't see what you see, but you do. You've called us. You've called us as parents, as, as, as husband or wife or mother or father, sister, brother. You've called us to represent you. You've assembled us together to be your disciples. The greatest team ever assembled by you are your disciples. And we exist even still today. Your spirit never dies, Lord. Continues on. Your spirit lives on forever and so do ours. Our spirits will live on forever, but what we do with that spirit in our temporary bodies is going to make the difference for all of eternity. Lord, give us a, a heart like a preacher, a heart like a missionary, a heart of an evangelist. It doesn't matter of our abilities because you're, you're the one who empowers us. You take ordinary people and you make them extraordinary. You give us gifts and talents to reach people that maybe only we can reach. You put us in places and in families that no one else was given the privilege of being a part of. But you did that for a specific reason. So that we could reach them. So that we could be men and women who go out into the world and fish for people. We are all your beloved. We are your children. So we pray, Lord, that as you empower us, we would be your team, the greatest team ever assembled, your disciples. Help us to go into all the world and teach people everything that you have commanded us. And may we never forget that you are always with us, even to the end of the age. In Jesus' precious name we pray, and we all said together, amen, amen. Can we, can we thank God for being that kind of God with us? So when you go home and when you go to work or with your family members and, and uh, wherever you're going to be, always remember that God has called us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. I'm so glad because in this season that we're in, even as a, as a community, as a church, as a nation, God is looking for men and women who will still answer the call of being his disciples. How about that? Would you come follow Jesus? Let's do that, will you?